that's wonderful because tonight we're looking in Isaiah 22 at the people of Judah, their leadership and their response to that leadership, the people and their leaders and God's judgment of Judah because of their leaders and their response, because they have rejected the one who is their only Savior, their only Sovereign. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, make sure we're in fellowship with God, and then we'll open the Word together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege to get together tonight to think about who you are and what you've done, what you've said, what that means uh, by your revelation about us. Father, your care for your people and your insistence on their walk with you and your response and judgment when they failed, so instructive for us. And I pray that we'll take the message of leadership and followership to heart tonight in Isaiah 22. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're studying uh, the leadership over the household of, of Judah, the steward over the king's house, and so like the prime minister of Judah, we're studying what the, um, the, the God's oracle of judgment on them, on the nation, uh, included with Shebna and Eliakim. We looked last week at Isaiah 22, uh, verses 1 through 14, which is God's judgment on Judah in the vision, the valley of vision. And we said... The problem in summary for them, as God tells them in his oracle of judgment, is uh, he says in verse 20, chapter 22, verse 10, you counted the houses of Jerusalem, tore down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. You did all this preparation for military invasion, but you did not look at him who made it. He says, nor did you see or pay attention to, again, a word for looking, into him who planned it long ago. The valley of vision, I believe, is a play on words in Isaiah 22 because a vision is a chazon, and the valley of vision is hazion, and it sounds like Zion. I think it's a play on words referencing Zion, but also the problem with Zion, the people in Jerusalem and Judea, they don't look to their creator. They're looking somewhere else. And it's, it's a very uh, applicable problem that God has with these people. They're looking somewhere besides their creator. They're casting about looking for deliverance from the Assyrians and the various uh, ways that they have. And God has condemned all of these. None of these are avenues for the people of Judah to get freedom from the Assyrians. The only hope for Judah, as we've studied is that God would show up and stop the judgment that he's bringing from Assyria. And he does. We write about it in Isaiah 37. The angel of the Lord showed up. He killed 185,000 Assyrians. And then uh, whatever was left went home. The king goes back to Assyria and eventually was murdered by his sons. But Judah will still be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, by the people that will rise up in the same region in Mesopotamia, 
a couple generations later, and they'll come and fulfill the destructive prophecy of verses 1 through 14. In the near term, in Isaiah's day, we have read in chapters 36 and 37, and in the parallel accounts in Kings and Chronicles, of this coming of Sennacherib, the Assyrian, to uh, destroy almost the entire southern kingdom, or, or at least occupy it. And he even laid siege to Jerusalem and almost did to them in 701, what he did in 722, to the northern kingdom. And in that story, we heard about this character, Shevna, the scribe. But in Isaiah 22, Shevna is the head of the household. He's the steward uh, of the king's house, and that, we think, is probably, therefore, prime minister. That's why he is, with Eliakim, coming to the king with the back and forth between the king and Isaiah. By the time we get to Isaiah chapter 36, he is Shevna the scribe. Before then, apparently, he was Shevna the prime minister. And there has been a great demotion of him, and we hear about God's judgment on him in this passage. It's a challenging passage, but not as challenging as verses 1 through 14. But in verses 15 through 25, you have a picture of God's judgment on his people, specifically this prime minister, Shevna, and then to the people who respond in an inappropriate way to a righteous ruler in Eliakim. And so you have the two things. You have God judging the individual ruler, and you have God dealing with the electorate, with the people, and it's both. And so as we live in the United States, the time in which we are, we see we have rulers and we have people to put them in power. And there is this, always this connection between the ruler and his people. And so um, I had an interesting conversation recently. Someone said, you know, you're talking on Sunday mornings in your new little series about God and government. This is a very bizarre thing to me that you would talk about the two things together, that you would put God and government in the same discussion. And this is the man on the street in the United States in the last 50, 60 years. This is who we are. Why would you talk about God and government in the same discussion? These are two different worlds. Your God stuff is in the noumenal. It's in the other. It's in the beyond. Go back to Kant and learn what Herr Kant would tell you. It's beyond your access. But the real world we live in, where we go and vote, that's the phenomenal. That's what we're really dealing with. You can see and touch and taste. That's the material world. And there will throw some rationality, some reason in there too. But you can only get at the things that you can see and touch, like, like a political process. This God stuff, that's in the other realm that doesn't belong. And, of course, we're here to, um, to take down that divide. We believe in completely rejecting that notion because God told us plenty about government. He told us plenty about his, uh, what he's after in government from humans who are always working, all of us, as God's image bearers, as proxies. We're all made to do something that he wants for us to do. And the challenge of the human being's life is, will you do it? Are you a willing participant in what God made you for? Are you going to pretend uh, in, the, in the clouded, decepted, or deceived um, uh, heart that is, is the heart of unbelief? Are you going to pretend that God isn't there and that he doesn't have good things in mind for you? And so um, the answer to the question, would you really put God and govern in the same place, is Isaiah chapter 22, verses 15 through 25, where God is going to judge Judah specifically with respect to the individual who is uh, the, the functionary administrator, 
Shebna and describe what's wrong with him. What do you think is probably Shebna's problem? If we're going to get a negative description of, of, uh, of government out of Isaiah 22, what do you suppose is the character flaw in Shebna? I'll give you a hint. It's not humility. He's, he's, he's puffed up. He thinks more highly of himself than he ought to think, which is that language from Romans uh, chapter 12, which is about how we're approaching our spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. If we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Um, if you read that in context. Well, Shebna is the individual that God goes after in verses 15 through 20, and Eliakim is his replacement, but God's judgment isn't on Eliakim in 21 through, or 20 through uh, 25. It's on the nation, it's on the people and how they respond to righteous rule. They put their hope in a good ruler, and God judges them for it, and they fall headlong because uh, their hope is in the wrong place. And it's the same message of verses 1 through 14, what are you looking at? It's the same message as Matthew 6, what are you looking at? So in English, we'll read it. He says in verse 15, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shevna, who is in charge of the royal household. What right do you have here, and whom do you have here, that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? See, the here, here, here. The king's household, we're dealing with somebody promoting himself to the right of the kings. And this is a big problem for God. He's doing this. And this is the problem of arrogance. He's giving himself a promotion that God hasn't given him. You who hew a tomb on the height. Do you know what they call the kings of Israel? David said it in the cave as Saul was covering his feet. Remember the story? David is in the kill position. I believe it's Benaiah standing next to him. Do it! Do it. And Saul is relieving himself in the cave, covering his feet. Understand you're in a one garment, a one solid garment. You take the robe down, covers your feet. That's the visual of the euphemism of relieving himself in the cave. David is there. Saul doesn't know it. Saul is trying to kill David. David is, he could argue self-defense. And what does David call King Saul? When his subordinates say, kill him, what do they say? The Lord's anointed. Can someone say that in Hebrew? You can, Mark. Come on, what's, what's anointed in Hebrew? Mashiach. And how do we say that in English? Anointed. But what do we really, we say Messiah. How do we say that in Greek? Christos, brought into English, Christ. He's calling him the anointed, the designated one of God. Who designates himself king? Nobody. This is something God designates. And so Shevna's gotten a little bit too big for his britches which is mixing, it's anachronistic because they're wearing uh, robes. All right. What right do you have here and whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? You who hew a tomb on the height, who carve a, a resting place for yourself in the rock. Behold, Yahweh is about to hurl you headlong, O man. He is about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into a vast country. There you will die. There your splendid chariots will be. Your shame, you shame of your master's house. I will depose you from your office and I will pull, down, pull you down from your station. I don't know if there is a more direct impingement of God's word on human government in the Bible than a statement like this. Where the prophet Isaiah, understand, is given this revelation from God and then he speaks it forth. 
So who does Isaiah think he is to say this is what God says about the prime minister of Israel? Who is, who is Isaiah to say that nobody? He's a man with a Messiah, an oracle or a revelation from God that he gave him. I want you to go give this message. And then he go and prophesies and gives the message. The challenge is, is, is Isaiah a subject of the legitimate uh, administration? Yes. Is he resisting authority by telling him what God says? No. He is telling the truth from the higher authority to someone that is still his authority, but subordinate to that higher authority. And that's the structure that Isaiah is working in. He's not um, gluing his face to great paintings and saying, we're going to force change our way against the patriarchy or the hierarchy or whatever the people are arguing about. He's not breaking the legal structures. He's just telling the truth. He's saying, this is what God says. And Shevna's days are numbered. And so Isaiah, I would contend, is a protected category as a prophet. But, but he's giving the higher authorities judgment on the lower authority. And this is approaching what we do when we criticize ourselves. And we functionaries within American government, all of us voters, all of us with the franchise, all of us with our share of the responsibility for the horrible things perpetrated by our federal and state governments with our tax money, we have a right to say, I will submit to the governing authorities. And while I do that, I'll talk about what the higher authority says about the functions of these godless governing authorities. And I'm not prophesying like Isaiah did. I'm applying the word of God to the circumstance. And I could, I could show you several types of examples where this would apply. And what I'm doing is speaking. I'm not inciting violence. I'm not leading people in violence. I'm seeking to change people's minds by telling the truth, which is, for some, the most violent act you can ever take, to say words that would impact people's consciences so that they made choices different from the existing power structure. That's what freedom of speech in the United States is about, which is under attack, as you know, in the time in which we live. It's just very interesting and compelling to me that this is one of those places, like in Isaiah 7, when the subordinate person under the governmental structure, Isaiah, is just a, he's just a member of court. But he has the revelation from God, so he has a word from God, who is the higher authority. He has something to say to the king Ahaz um, in, uh, in Isaiah 7. This is what king, the, okay, O house of David, hear from Yahweh. And here he's doing it with Shevna the scribe. And, um, and this, is, this is what you see the prophets doing throughout the Old Testament. God has a lot to say about human government. To say this is illegitimate, what's happening is wrong, this is against what God said, this violates some central principle of God's word. To say that is to simply tell the truth. As Orwell said, it's to say two plus two is four. And that is what um, our country depended on in its founding was the freedom to say, this is, this is the way it is. Now, I could be wrong, but the more often I'm right, the more credence people will give what I have to say and if, if we have fair dealing. And I will gain influence by telling the truth and saying, this is the way, which is what we should all strive for, which is why you really want to guard your, um, your words. Guard your, today, your digital word pro profile, what you approve of, what you thumbs up, what you like, what you speak about, what you comment on. I'm telling you to tell your kids this. Don't say anything except something that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Don't say anything except something that looks like you belong to him and your mission is his work because it's, it's not there forever. And what are you here for? Nevertheless, God sends Isaiah with this message of judgment on Shevna the scribe. Leadership seems to have two directions of leadership responsibilities uh, for everybody but God. God's at the top, so he has nobody above him. But you have you. Here you are to apply the problem of Shevna the scribe, who was well, the prime minister who becomes Shevna the scribe. You're the leader, and there is always a higher authority over you. This is the arrangement of God's delegated works. And we're talking about this on Monday, on Sunday's first hour with the study of God and government. There's higher authority. There's you. I'm calling you a leader because there's some stewardship that's been entrusted to you. And it may be that you're just leading people that you encounter to think of Christ. But you have a leadership task as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ to make disciples, even if you don't find yourself as a management position or, or some other thing. All of you have been called by God to be leaders, at least by example. And then you have your subordinates. Now, my example of sharing Christ, the people that you're talking to, the disciple, they're not your subordinates in this sense. But let's just talk about in a hierarchical authority situation. You start off emptying trash cans or scrubbing the floor with a toothbrush if you're a private soldier in basic training and trouble. But you start off with no subordinates, just peers, and eventually and inevitably, you're going to get a chance to lead. That's how life is, young people, as you grow up. So there's the higher authority, there's you, the leader, and then there's your subordinates. In terms of what we call the stasis, that, that structure of over and under when there's authority. Higher authority comes down from on high with the mission. They tell you what is the lower outfit's job to do. Higher authority, no matter how high you are, the higher authority has a mission for you. And, um, and until you get up to the top, and the top, he's saying what the mission is, which is interesting. Jesus told us in Matthew 28 what our mission is. But higher authority has the mission, and now you, the leader, are equipped. I know what, all these resources with the equipment and the subordinates and all the stuff and the time and all that, I know what it's for. I've got a mission to do. Now, notice that if you don't listen to higher authority and you have your own agenda, then you're going to divide the resources and not marshal them toward the mission that you've been given. You're going to be ineffective because you're going to be going after your own little side projects. See, this is the, the, the reason why you have to learn authority from the very beginning as a private soldier emptying the trash can. Because the higher you go, the more vital it is that you listen to the higher with their mission so that the big unit, let's say you're a brigade commander, 5,000 soldiers, all those tanks, let's say that you need to go do the job that the brigade alone can do. You've got one-fifth of the combat power of an entire infantry, uh, heavy infantry division. And so now, you, well, I'm a colonel. I'm a full bird. Full bird. You Navy people, that's a captain. Right. And so it's even more important now that you have all these troops. You, by your stature, have a higher expectation, a higher need, a higher responsibility to get hold of that mission and go do it. Because if, you, if you're weak, if you don't grab fully the mission and you run it with all your heart, then then there's going to be a vital failure. The bigger your unit, as it were, the more strategic. We're in a submarine frame of mind here. All of us, in one way or another, we're, we're living on the submarine industry, arguably. 
Some of you more direct, others less direct. I used to say when we first got here, the smaller the unit that's an independent command, the more strategic it becomes. 5,000 troops in a, in a brigade. How many, how many men on an on a Ohio submarine? 160. 160? That's an interesting differential in the leadership capacity. Two, two 06s, colonel, captain. One of them's got 160 guys. One of them has 5,000 guys and gals. And you say, um, one of those could take out multiple continents. <laughs> I mean, it's, okay, it's classified what they could actually accomplish, but something like multiple um, locations. And, and that, that infantry brigade is going to do a lot of force-on-force -force traditional warfare stuff. But anyway, my point is that the higher, if you think about this in terms of increasing in rank, the higher you get, the more important it is that you grab that higher authority's mission and you submit to it, that you humble yourself to the higher authority to gain what they're saying. How do you know what the job is? They told you. And it's always true. Now, they may come to you and say, here are the objectives we have. We're trying to carve out a mission. How do you see yourself fitting in? They might, they might do that if you get up high enough. And they, you say, well, here's what I can do. Here's what I suggest. They take it under advisement. But eventually, that higher authority is going to make a decision. They're going to put a mission down on you. And you better humble yourself to get it. Or you're going to find yourself continually busted back down to square one, where you're that private soldier that just won't quite empty the trash can. And you had a potential, we all do, to rise up to where you are trusted with great and wonderful things. But if you can't humble yourself and empty the trash can, you can't get promoted to be the guy that makes sure that all the trash gets taken out so that they promote you up to make sure and so forth until you finally find yourself in charge of that, in charge of that brigade. That's, that's, this seems to be how wisdom works and within um, authority structures. Now, Understand, our mission is to make disciples. That's why we have a spiritual gift. That's why we have God the Holy Spirit living in our hearts to abide forever. That's why we have the revelation of the apostles in the New Testament built on the apostles and pro uh, the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament. That's why we have the spiritual life that we have. I don't think it's too much to say that's why we're drawing breath here, this side of trusting in Christ as our Savior. And so this is very applicable to your life as a believer but higher authority issues a mission to you, the leader, and now you have to carry it out. You have tasks to make sure that that mission gets accomplished because he gave it to me, because he told me this is what he wants me to do. So now my life has purpose, it has direction, it has meaning. I know I'm not just uh, sitting up here, must be nice to be the, the old man, they call the, the commander in the, in the army. Must be nice to be um, up in the headquarters where they've got coffee maker. Fresh coffee. I think I need to come see the colonel more often, right? Must be nice. They have a sat phone. We didn't have a sat phone. The colonel had a sat phone. Must be nice to have all these privileges. And that's what we tend to think. The people with authority or with, with position, we think they've got all these privileges and they're just chilling in the, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the warm, we say, in the rear with the gear. But the truth is that that higher authority is really under greater stress because he's got to execute this greater mission using all the resources, including you and me, if we're under that authority. And so the, the subordinates have tasks. I think there are two main leadership tasks as I look to the Lord Jesus and I examine what he says to the Roman centurion and um, really the entirety of the New Testament. You have higher authority issuing the mission of you, the leader, and your first task would be decisions. 
you have to manage the resources that have been committed to you. Isn't that true? Every, every resource is a set of decisions that you have to make. How are we going to use them? Thomas Sold helpfully defined economics, um, probably among others, by saying it is the study of economics is the distribution of scarce resources with multiple alternative uses. We have a little bit of time. We have just a number of troops, and every one of them is valuable beyond measure to their parents and to their families and to, uh, to, to God as God's image bearers. So there's these personnel assets, and there's this time, and there's energy, and there's money, and there's, there's equipment, all that for accomplishing a mission, to use my military paradigm. You have all these decisions you have to make, and you can't go twice. You can only go once. You can't go to ob- uh, objective A and B. You can pick A or B. And, and you can only set up the machine gun once, so do a good job with it. These are the leadership decisions that you have to make. And here's the thing about being the leader making the decisions. Once you make the decision, if you have the authority to make it, those under you are supposed to say, that's the decision we will execute because they're part of the structure of this delegated chain. But that's the first task is making decisions. The second task you, the leader, have is to influence people. You bring about a desire in the hearts of those, especially people, the people that you're working with because you're leading them. It's easy to manage material. I've mentioned people as assets. They're not. They're people, right? And so it's much easier to emplace machine guns than to deal with Crawley, the machine gunner, whose wife just sent him a letter that he can't get over because of the bad news he received. See, that machine gun here, that's easy. You need to get on your mission because we have a job to do and, and we're going to survive this night is a much bigger task in terms of the leadership influence. Hopefully you can see what we mean by influencing. So you have decisions to make, but then you have the influence of the people that you're working with, and these are be your subordinates. And so this is a big lift. It's a big order when you talk about leadership. And Shevna the scribe is a fail. He's a failed leader. The reason I brought this Roseland view of leadership and decisions and, I mean, it's very simplified, but decisions and influence. Decisions being management, influence being leadership, really. Okay, if you think of it that way. The reason I bring this to bear for this discussion is that there's one character quality that stands out among all others, all other things you might say you want to see in someone if you want them to be a successful leader, that means a man or woman under the authority of a higher authority with a mission delegated from them to that leader to accomplish it using those uh, assets under him or her. What character quality do you need? That person has to have a good set of ears so they can shema the mission. They can hear what is required of them because otherwise they don't know what to do. They need to know, uh, take notes, be able to write down pretty clearly this is the destination that the boss said we're supposed to end up at. So they're not just out there freewheeling with their, with their, their forces doing whatever they want. No, we've got to get here by this time to do this job. So they have to have a good set of ears. They need a shema. They need to hear what the higher authority has to say. And the first principle I contend and the virtue that you'll never outgrow and you'll never fully grasp but you'll always need to seek is humility. Humility is the ability to hear the higher authority and by virtue of the arrangement of God the sovereign delegating this down to the subordinates, the ability to receive their instruction and adopt it as your responsibility. That is one helpful definition of humility. 
Can somebody give me a biblical paradigm for humility? Anybody have a verse or a passage that occurs to you that would help you to anchor yourself biblically on the concept of leadership humility? The person's in charge, but they're exhibiting maximum humility. Where would we find that? Anything come to mind? How about a passage where you're told you're supposed to be this way, and here's your example? Like in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11? Exactly where I was going. Have this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ. Let me read it. Which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, the very essence of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men. The emptying of Christ is not of his essence, it's of the expression of his glory as he veiled his glory in the flesh of mankind. He has a right place, and it is to be worshipped by the creatures that he has made and that he sustains, and yet he leaves that position, insisting on worship, to become the slave, in the form of a slave. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And for this reason, also, God, that's the Father, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The model Paul proposes is Jesus in his kenosis, the emptying not of his essence as God, but of the expression of that essence as one worthy of worship. The expression of it is veiled within the flesh of mankind. And there's a glimpse that Peter and John get of it at the Mount of Transfiguration. They see him glorified, and it's majestic and almost something they can't even look at. But under the conditions of his incarnation, he's just one of us. He's really man born of the virgin, really God, and one person forever. And so the model, okay, for you is the incarnation of Jesus, humbling himself under whose mission? The higher authority, his father. The higher authority, the headquarters handing down the mission says this is the mission. Jesus says it, I I forget how many times, but the theme in John keeps repeating throughout the Gospel of John. I haven't come with my own message. I come to the will of him who sent me. It's not speaking of myself. These are things I heard my father speak in John 16 and talking about the Holy Spirit. 14 or 16, I think it's 16. He says that he's not going to speak of himself, but that which he hears, the Holy Spirit hears, that's what he's going to say. From God the Father, he's not from the pastor, he's hearing it from God. The things that the Father wants the Spirit to remind the disciples of what Jesus taught, he'll remind them. Because the Father is the Father, and the Son is the Son, and that's the arrangement. And so what you see in the Scriptures is this structure that the Father sends the Son, the Son submits to the Father's mission and is glorified and exalted for it. There's an award ceremony at the end of uh, Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11. For this reason, he was highly exalted. That is the pattern. Have this thinking yourselves, which is also in Christ. That is the pattern that for the glory that's set before, uh, the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross in Hebrews 12. 
for that joy that's set before you. There's a promotion. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he will promote you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. In 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, this is the pattern, and there is no other. The whole thing begins with humility. The ground wire that makes the circuit work is humility. The gasoline that makes the car turn over is humility. There is no other I don't care how excellent you might be in any other category. It's humility. And what's wrong with Shebna the scribe? The only thing we know about Shebna the scribe from the scriptures as the prime minister is that he has taken a a prestige to himself that God hasn't given him. He is arrogant instead of humble. He is putting on airs when he needs to roll up his sleeves and get to work for the interest that God has for him. He's glorifying himself and setting himself up in the tombs of the kings for his legacy when he needs to be doing the work that God has for him as a leader. So Shevna. We see that in this portion in verses um, uh, 15 through 19, 19, 20. It's 15 through 19. The presentation of the leader is in the focus. He talks about Shevna, not the people. He has privileges and position that he assumes to himself. And the protocol problem is that this is not something he should have done. And the, the, the hewing of the, of the tomb is the example that Isaiah su- supplies of the transgression. The character problem is arrogance. Now, the, the followers of Shevna are not described, the, the people. It's not about the people in verses um, 15 through 19, but it will be in, in 20 through 25. What the people are supposed to do is imitate the leader. That's the method all through the scriptures. We're made in God's image. Be holy for I'm holy, God tells Abram. This is how God wants us to deal. He wants us to be like him. We're his children. In Ephesians chapter 5, the example uh, that that always comes to mind is that um, as beloved children, you need to imitate, be imitators of God as beloved children and so walk in love just as Christ has given himself and loved us. This, as a, and love gave himself as a fragrant aroma to God and humbled himself before the Father. This model, um, I'm paraphrasing in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, is what you would expect. And this is why kids act like their parents. This is follow the leader. This is follow the leader. That's what the people are to, uh, to do. And so here's the problem with the people. If the leader self-glorifies, what should you expect from his followers? Now, every human being has agency. That means volitional responsibility. Every human being is responsible for our choices. But boy, is it easy to follow a bad leader down a bad path. And what God does with his people throughout the scriptures is he holds them both accountable. Now, Shevna is summarized with one word. It's a shocking word. In verse 15... I'm not, sorry, not verse 15. I'm sorry, it's verse, it's verse 18. When he says, there your splendid chariots will be, you shame of your master's house. That's the word I'm trying to get myself to say you shame shame of your master's house that's some pretty harsh language 
And I looked up the word that's used there uh, in Hebrew for shame. And uh, it turns out it doesn't happen that often in the scriptures, but it's especially prominent in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 3.35, it says, The wise will inherit honor, but fools hold up dishonor. They display dishonor. Look what I got. Dishonor. Disgrace. That's this word. In Proverbs 6.33, Wounds and disgrace he will find. The fool and his reproach will not be blotted out. In Proverbs 9.7, He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. See, that the, the dishonor can be from an external source, like if you reprove a scoffer, he'll scoff at you and dishonor you. So it can be from an external source. It can be from your own choices like Shevna. When pride comes in Proverbs 11.2, then comes dishonor. That's this word shame. But with the humble is wisdom. And the contrast is humility versus arrogance. With pride or arrogance, uh, when this comes, the result is shame or dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Which one do you want? A fool's anger is known at once, but a wise, but a prudent man or a wise man conceals dishonor. Proverbs 12, 16, anger compared with shame. And Proverbs 13, 18, poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline. Poverty and shame, that's your word for Shebna the scribe. He's a shame of his household. But he who regards reproof will be honored. So poverty comes to the person who neglects discipline and, and shame comes with that. But the person who regards reproof, who puts himself under discipline, will be honored. Which one do you want? It's a lot of cause effect in the Proverbs. In Proverbs 18.3, when a wicked man comes, contempt also comes. And with this dishonor or shame comes scorn. And then Proverbs 22.10, very shocking. It's a strategic um, uh, amputation. Drive out the scoffer and contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. I can read that to you in the King James. Cast out the scorner and contention shall go out. Yea, strife and reproach shall cease. But there's a personal source of the strife. And the idea is that if you want to get rid of the dishonor, you get rid of the culprit, which is a no-brainer. If you have cancer that's killing you, you cut out the cancer, right? And that's, the, that's Proverbs on this word shame, dishonor. This is what Shevna is, and why is, he, why is he a shame? What's God's judgment on Shevna? He dug a tomb. What is this emblematic of? He's assuming the role and the, and the honor and the privilege of the legacy of the kings. Ever hear of leaders talking about legacy? See, Shevna is beyond care about the things that we tend to strive for in the middle class. He's, he's beyond concern about whether he's going to eat or feed his family or whether his kids are going to have a job. He's beyond the concerns of, that, that uh, drive us in terms of the subsistence economics. Not a problem for him. He's, he's, he's set. He's a made man. He's made his bones. So what's left? Well, what's lonely at the top? Start thinking about the future and his legacy. This is just the very the most common thing in the world. What are, the, what are the, the people that are beyond concern for the needs of this life? What do the super wealthy talk about? They talk about fixing the problems of the world. They're going to vaccinate the, the poor masses in India. To use one recent example, they're going to bring their enlightened view of, I heard one, one super rich man say in 2005 and 
a briefing in DC said that um, we can now genetically engineer viruses to um, go attack the genetic code of people to change their genes for the people that are super religiously fanatic, people that are fundamentalists in religion. We can get them to, through viral infections that are genetic modifying viruses, we can go and, and re-engineer people. Solve our 9-11 terror problem is the theory. That's an interesting statement from the super wealthy guy that said that in around 2005. But this is what they do. They want to they make their mark. They need to read Ecclesiastes. Solomon tells you there is no mark. Whatever mark you make is going to get forgotten. There is no long-term thing. But under the sun, this is what people do. They try to make themselves a legacy. And you need to do the math on that. We all do. If you haven't thought this through, if you haven't figured out that there's never going to be enough money to satisfy your ambition to make something of yourself, that there's never going, there's no promotion, there's nothing you can attain in this life that will satisfy your personal need that God has given you to be pleasing to him. There is nothing like pleasing him. And, and you can make an experiment of your life or you can read Ecclesiastes and learn it from someone that already tried it. I like to do things as, as, and on a discount as much as I can. If I can have somebody have already run the experiment and tell me about it, I'd rather read about it and learn than waste the most valuable thing that I have, which is my life. At, the, at that precious cost of finding out the same thing, oh, it was a waste. But that's Ecclesiastes, and that's wisdom. Leaders who reject humility are rejected by God in verses 15 through 19 is the big takeaway from Shevna. But what about Eliakim? It saith in verse 20, Then it will come about in that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely around him. I will entrust him with your authority and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to those of Judah. Enlightened leadership. Somebody that God's going to designate and set up as the replacement. All right. Yes. Good leaders. Good outcome November 8th. we got some good momentum toward the truth, toward righteousness, back to the way it's supposed to be. Careful. Because now this judgment isn't on Eliakim. It's on the electorate. It's on the people. As we continue, the shock will, will set in. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder, when he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. We do this in, in our car sometimes. Um, I turn the radio to a certain setting or set the thermostat on a certain setting, and then someone may, may, may think that it's their right to, to, to change it. And I always think of this concept. What he shuts, no one's going to open. What he opens, no one's going to shut. It's an authority move. <laughs> Don't touch it, right? <laughs> no change in my thermostat. Bring down the hammer. No, no, uh, no messing with these things. Okay, this is, what, this is what leadership does. He makes decisions, as I'm trying to demonstrate. My model is really a biblical model. What he opens, no one will shut. What he shuts, no one will open. So I'm going to delegate this responsibility to him, have this authority. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. He will become a throne of glory to his father's house. That is Proverbs language. He will become, you're ashamed to your father's house, Shevna. Eliakim is going to be a throne of glory to his father's house. Who is that man? He's the son of Hilkiah. What must be Hilkiah? What a man he must be is the way people are going to think of him. It says right here, your father's household is will be honored and glorified. You'll be a throne of glory to your father's household. It's Proverbs, which is a primer from David's uh, wisdom that Solomon received that Solomon's trying to pass on to his idiot son, Rehoboam. I'm using technical language. Um, 
that, that is a primer for him to rule in wisdom under God. God gave him a wisdom, and then he writes Proverbs for his son. Son, listen to my words. And Rehoboam's the greatest fool, uh, one of the greatest fools in the Bible. And that's the irony of Scripture. But anyway, this is beautiful. God is going to set this man up as a good ruler, an enlightened ruler. And he's going to glorify his father's house with what a great ruler he is. So you get a good, a good election, good rulers. So they will hang on him. Now, the imagery is a peg in the wall. So something that's firmly ensconced like a peg in the wall that you could hang, you know, your water canteen on or something. So they'll hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the leaves of the vessels from bowls to all the jars. So the imagery is we're hanging all the canteens. Well, guess what? <laughs> it can't hold the weight because if all your hopes are in one human, enlightened as he may be, that's a fail too. And this is the, the indictment of the people. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in the firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall. And the load hanging on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. So this is the, this is the shock of God's judgment in the Valley of Vision that he does give them. He promises to give them an enlightened and righteous ruler, subordinate ruler under Hezekiah. But he's going to fail because of the people, because they're going to look at the wrong place. They're looking at their political leaders for what they really need. The presentation of the leader here is not focal in the judgment. There's a judgment, but it's not about the leader. The privileges and position are given by God, and the protocol, as far as protocol is concerned for him, he's in alignment for himself. It's all good for the ruler. But the followers are focal in this judgment, and they break protocol because they hang their hopes on Eliakim instead of the Lord. And so Shevna's story is about the the arrogance of the ruler. Eliakim is about the foolishness of the people who still won't look to the Lord who gave them Eliakim. This is what we do. We put our hopes in the political process. We put our hopes in human rulers. Don't do it. Don't hang your hopes there. They can't support the weight. Our hope is in the Lord. And this is our only recourse. Verses 20 through 25, the message is followers who hang undue hopes on their leaders and so fail to hope in the Lord will destroy the leader and suffer a fall. So leadership, God and government, is a major theme in the Scriptures. And it is the basis for God's judgment in this case, in the second half of the Valley of Vision Oracle, God's judgment on, the coming judgment on Judah. Long term, there's going to be a destruction of the, of the people in Judea, I believe carried out by Nebuchadnezzar eventually. Short term is this upset within the, the administration of the royal household. And that is the Valley of Vision. Our Father, we thank you for the message of humility we're constantly bombarded with as we pay attention to Isaiah and to all the prophets. Father, as we compare ourselves with the messages you've given us, you give us plenty of fodder for repentance, for a change of thinking about ourselves, coming to ourselves, looking in the mirror of the word and seeing where we stack up. Father, don't let us walk away from this message tonight about humility and arrogance, about leadership and followership, about being about your mission and, um, and requiring, therefore, the character quality of humility. Don't let us walk away from this in arrogance, disregarding what you've said about these two different leaders and the people's response. Let us take it to heart, Father. Let us take these, th these words deep in our hearts, literally, so that we can think in terms with the eyes of faith about trusting you and humbling ourselves before you within your structures. For we ask in Jesus' name, we all said.